Oh, Father, out here in this beautiful creation, it's easy for us to forget all that's going on in the world. I think that's why you directed us to the birds, to the, the flowers in the field, to remind us that we don't need to worry about tomorrow, that you will take care of us. Father, we recognize that many people are worried. They're anxious and they need to know the gospel. They need to know the good news that we have in Jesus. And Father, we ask that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit as we look at the word of God together. That you, who have inspired it, would speak to our hearts and draw us closer to you. Um, Thank you for revealing your love to us in new and fresh ways in our time together. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. It was about a year ago when I got a phone call. And when I answered it and I started talking to the individual, he said, hey, we're, you remember we, we, we knew each other back in such and such a place? Yeah, I totally remember you. He said, I'm going through it right now. My family is in a tough situation. He said, you see, we adopted these two twin boys. So we really identify with your girls. And, and we thought of you uh, because here's what's going on. These little boys have uh, younger siblings who We want to adopt as well. In fact, we were able to be, I believe it was foster parents for them for about 14 months. We were able to have them in our home. But the biological dad came. He took them. He took them down to Mexico. And he left them there. They're in a horrible situation. They're like in a shack there. They're they're being mistreated. It's not okay for them to be there. And and I want to get them back. And he begins to unfold the story of what he had done and what he'd been up to. he had already spent thousands and thousands of dollars, more than I, my, my little pastor mind can comprehend, amount of money he had spent on trying to get these kids back. And as he's telling me this, he's, he's telling me the story, I'm thinking, well, maybe he's telling me, you know, I'm done. I don't know anything else I can do. Maybe he's fed up. Maybe this is the end of the story for him. It kind of reminds me of, of one day when Jesus is is on his way to Jerusalem. And you might remember the story. It's a week before he goes to the cross. And it's Palm Sunday, as we now call it. And he goes and he has a colt come to him. And he's riding on this colt. And everybody's shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The, the, the king of David, the, the king that's going to sit on David's throne is coming. And they're, they're waving palm branches. They have robes out. They're, they're acknowledging that here comes the Messiah. The, the moment that the disciples had been longing for was finally there. And then they crest the Mount of Olives. If you've ever been there, there's this beautiful scene that unfolds to you as you look out and there is Jerusalem. And, and right there is the Temple Mount, the closest part of Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives. And everybody is just takes in a breath of the beauty of these huge stone walls that had been built uh, years before and yet had been enhanced and broadened and, and made so beautiful by King Herod. It was this amazing, magnificent structure. With I mean, the stones there, there's some stones that are like 70 feet long and they're, they're massive, thick stones in the walls there. And, and so they're looking at this, this beautiful structure that represented to them the pride of their religion. Everything that they, they were hoping for was in that temple And all of them are caught up in that moment when suddenly they notice somebody else is not feeling the same way that they are. But Jesus' body is racked with grief as he begins to shake and to sob looking out there at Jerusalem. And we pick up the story in Luke chapter 13. If you have have your Bibles, 
Luke chapter 13, it records how this triumphal entry is taking place and, and this strange moment comes where you wonder, did, is God done with Jerusalem? Is he fed up? Is he done absolutely everything he can and, and this is it? He's giving up on Jerusalem? Luke chapter 13, and we'll jump down, uh, sorry, Luke chapter 19, and we will jump down to verse 41. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, if only you had recognized what makes for shalom for your peace, that's a wholeness in your, your, your entire existence, if only you had recognized the value of what I long to give you. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. You you didn't recognize what's taking place, and, and you didn't realize the gift that I came to offer you. And so, it almost sounds like Jesus is, I, I'm done with them, I'm, I'm giving up on them. And then we, let's turn over to Mark chapter 11 because it gives us a few more details in the story. This is recorded in all three Gospels. But Mark chapter 11, immediately after going into Jerusalem, he looks around in the temple in Mark chapter 11 and verse 11. And then verse 12, it says, So the next day when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry. And so he's, he's walking back from Bethany over the Mount of Olives again. As he comes over the Mount of Olives, he looks around and there's some fig trees around. And as he looks at these fig trees, he sees one particular fig tree that looks promising. The rest of them... They don't look like they have fruit on them. But this one, it looks promising. It's, it's giving the, the idea to people that there's fruit to be had there. And so he goes to this tree and he sees that there's no fruit there. And so he says, may no one ever eat from you again. And then they go on from there and they go down into Jerusalem. And when they go down into Jerusalem, uh, Mark chapter 11 continues and it says that Verse 15, so they came to Jerusalem. Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. I mean, he's just come in as Messiah and he's taking over the temple. And why is he doing this? Why did he drive these people out? Look at what it says. Then he taught saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations for who you see what jesus is trying to pinpoint here for them he says this house of prayer is to be a house of prayer for all nations but what have you done but you have made it a den of thieves you see here's what would happen you would come to the temple and if you didn't if you weren't one of the locals you didn't live nearby and you couldn't bring your lamb with you you couldn't bring your ox with you you'd come to the temple you'd bring your money with you and when you got to the temple, you'd exchange it for the temple coin. That exchanging process would be used by the priests in order to get a profit. They, would, they made the, the temple coin worth so much more than your money. So you're already losing money there. And then you would begin to barter with the traders who had the, the lambs, who had the, the ox, or whatever it was that you were to sacrifice, the pigeons. And they would charge you an exorbitant price and they knew that you had to pay it because you traveled from a long distance just to worship and what else are you going to do? They have uh, the advantage in the market, you might say. And so 
This didn't happen to the locals. This happened to the foreigners. This happened to the people from far away, from all nations. They're coming to worship. And there are walls built up that are keeping them from coming in contact with the Almighty God. From keeping them from coming in contact with Jesus. And Jesus is not having it. So this is not the way it's going to... If you're inviting me to be into the temple, this is is not the way it's going to happen. And he goes on to clear the temple of that business. And then... Then we, we continue on in the story. As we go back up the, the mountain, uh, it says that, verse 20, Now in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. He's, he's giving a living parable. You might wonder, well, why would the, this life-giving healer, God in human flesh, why would he curse this tree. He gives life. He heals. He does all these amazing things. Why would he curse this tree? He was doing it as an example of what God is most concerned about. And that is people who are pretentious about their worship, who give a misrepresentation of who he is, and in the process, they turn other people away from God. The Desire of Ages picks up this story and, and gives some fascinating insights about it. It says the greatest deception, this is page, uh, sorry, this is page 584. Uh, the warning is for all time. Christ's act in cursing the tree which, which his own power had created stands as a warning to all churches and to all Christians. No one can serve the law of God without ministering to others. But there are many who do not live out Christ's merciful and selfish life. Some who think themselves excellent Christians do not understand what constitutes service for God. They plan and study to please themselves. We talked about this last week, how Jesus said in the last days, it's going to be like the days of Noah, like the days of Lot. And he doesn't highlight all the violence. He doesn't highlight all of that, although that is included in in the, the, the symbol. But he highlights the fact they're going to be eating and drinking, going about their life, and not caring about the world that's perishing around them. Then it goes on to say, they are not in touch with humanity. Those who thus live for self are like the fig tree, which made every pretension, but was fruitless. They observe the forms of worship, but without repentance or faith. In profession, they honor the law of God, but obedience is lacking. They say, but do not. In the sentence pronounced on the fig tree, Christ demonstrates how hateful in his eyes is vain pretense. He declares that the open sinner is less guilty than is he who professes to serve God, but who bears no fruit to his glory. Mercy. Did you just hear that? It's saying that it's better to be an open sinner, just living in open sin, than to go and to pretend that you are serving God, but not to allow that relationship to transform your heart. In fact, this is exactly what Jesus goes on to do in Matthew 21, which is the other place where we find the triumphal entry. If you look in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus, after he, he cleanses the temple, he tells a, a few different stories because his authority is being questioned. And, and a fascinating thing with some of the, the uh, tellings of when his, his uh, authority is being questioned, one of the things they ask him about is taxes. So if you're going to rule for us, Jesus, what do we do about Caesar? How do we handle Caesar? He says, hey, render to Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and to God the things which are God's. 
That's a really good thing for us to remember in the times that we're living right now. We always put God first in his law, every part of the Bible first, and then we render to Caesar, even if Caesar's a dictator, even if Caesar's a maniacal character, we still render to him taxes. Can you believe that Jesus would say that? He said, render to Caesar. Follow this government that's been set up. And the New Testament confirms that repeatedly. But then it goes on to say, the parable of the two sons, and Jesus shares this story about how one son comes to his father, and the father says, hey, would you go out and do this work for me? And the son says, yeah, I'll do it. And then he goes about his business and doesn't do it. And then another son, the second son comes along and says, no, I'm not going to do the work you asked me to do. But then he goes and he does it. And he says, so which one did the will of the father? And so they answer the question, uh, verse 31, which of the two did the will of his father? They said to him, the first. Jesus said to them, assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. Wow. Can you imagine what this is like? Here you have religious leaders. Here you have people that are keeping the Sabbath. They're following God's commandments. They're doing everything possible to make themselves righteous. And this radical teacher comes up to them and says, Look, you know that prostitute down the street? She's entering the kingdom of heaven before you. You know that guy that's that's collecting taxes for Caesar? I said you should still be paying your taxes. Well, that guy is entering the kingdom of heaven before you. And this gives rise in my heart for a need for humility, a recognition that that if I think I have it together, I'm in big trouble. And this is exactly what is told to the last day church in the Laodicean church. Revelation chapter 3 is a church that is lukewarm. And what does it mean to be lukewarm? I heard one pastor say it this way. To be lukewarm is to be hot on the outside and cold on the inside. You mix those two together and you end up being lukewarm. And you go on to see that that's basically what it's describing is it says you think that you have it all together. You have riches. You have, uh, I forget exactly how it goes. And then it says, but you do not know that you're wretched, you're miserable, you're poor, you're blind. You need me. You need my righteousness. You need my eyes up. You need to recognize that you don't even know what you need, but you need a Savior. And today that's where I have to stand here and say, I can't stand here as a pastor and say, I've got it together. But what I need to recognize is that even if I don't see it fully, I'm wretched, I'm miserable, I'm poor, I'm blind, and I need Isaac. I need his righteousness. I need his character in me. Or I'm in danger of being like that fig tree that he cursed, of being like Jerusalem, that as he came to the brow of that hill, he wept over Jerusalem. And again, in chapter 23, he, he goes on the, 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 the mount, and this is right before chapter 24 where he's going to break down the, the signs that will precede his second coming. He combines that with the destruction of Jerusalem. And in Matthew 23 and verse 37, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wing but you are not willing. You see the beautiful picture of what he's wanting to do. He's wanting for you to recognize that you're like a helpless little chick who needs to be sheltered under his wings. And if we'll only come to realize that and recognize that day by day, live in the reality of that dependence upon God, then he'll gladly shelter us in his wings. 
But if we want to go our own way, we want to come up with our own solutions, we want to fix our own problems in our own way, we're going to end up in a world of hurt, just like Jerusalem ends up in a world of hurt. Verse 38, see your house is left to you desolate. This is the house that, that had been promised in Haggai chapter 2 that it was going to have a glory that exceeded Solomon's temple because the desire of all nations would come into it. And they had turned away from Jesus. Not intentionally thinking they were giving up following the Messiah, but they had turned away from Jesus. You know, a week and a half ago, we had the shooter that we talked about last week here right in our town. And you maybe saw the surveillance pictures that came back the first day. I don't remember if it was some some store downtown Paso. He comes in, and, and I noticed he's wearing this necklace, and I was trying to look at that necklace like, what is he wearing around his neck, and why is he wearing a necklace while he's going around killing people? But I couldn't tell what the necklace was. Well, that night, he goes into the Chevron just down the road from us here. And the surveillance camera is a little bit clearer. And that picture came back. And as I woke up that morning, I felt like maybe I understood just a little bit more the way that Jesus feels. Because as I looked at that picture, you know what he was wearing on that necklace? A cross. Who wears a cross? Well, they go around killing people around here. Who, who, who pretends like they're following God and they're killing people? Obviously, he was insane, but here's the thing. You and I pretend to follow Jesus, and how do we treat people? What does it result in in our lives? What is the character that's exhibited by us, and does that reflect properly on who Jesus is and what he came to do? And if it doesn't, we're in big trouble. And we've got to recognize that. And it's okay to recognize that you're in big trouble. Actually, that's the most joyful thing, the thing that can bring you the most peace today, is to recognize that you are sinful and in need of a Savior. Because then you can be sheltered under the arms of the loving Savior. And He can hold you up. And He can transform your heart as you simply trust in His saving grace and what He can do. Not like... Uh, the, the Pharisees who in, in chapter 23, it goes through how they brought in their phylacteries. They lengthened the corners of their robes. They tithed the mint and the cumin. And he said, you should do those things, but you neglect mercy and justice. You neglect the people around you. You didn't make this house a house of prayer for all people. You didn't love your neighbor as yourself. And you missed the whole picture. Desire of Ages, uh, page 309, says this, The greatest deception of the human mind in Christ's day was that a mere assent to the truth constitutes righteousness. Did you catch that? Just thinking that you have the truth is the greatest possible deception in Christ's day. In all human experience, a theoretical knowledge of the truth has proved to be insufficient for the saving of the soul. It's not enough to know the truth. Unless you know the one who is truth, Jesus. And that relationship will change everything. I'm not saying that you don't want to know the truth because the truth will lead you to Jesus. But if you stop at the truth, the theoretical knowledge, you miss everything. The same danger still exists. Many take it for granted that they are Christians simply because they subscribe to certain theological tenets, but they have not brought the truth into practical life. They have not believed it and loved it. Therefore, they have not received the power and grace that came through the sanctification of the truth. Men may profess faith in the truth, but catch this. Men may profess faith in the truth, but if it does not make them sincere, kind, patient, forbearing, 
heavenly minder, it is a curse to its possessors. And through their influence, it is a curse to the world. This tells me that I I don't want to go around and tell people, hey, look, I've got the truth. And then I treat them. I mistreat them. And, And they don't... They don't recognize that I, I acknowledge, I mean, we all make mistakes and we can confess that and, and ask for forgiveness of somebody and the forgiveness of God. But, but if I'm knowingly mistreating people while I'm professing God, it's a curse to the world because it misrepresents who God is. And God wants to transform our hearts completely and totally. It goes on to say in Matthew chapter 24 that lawlessness will increase. And because lawlessness has increased, it says the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures until the end will be saved. The world's going to get crazier and crazier. There's going to be more and more lawlessness, which means less and less love for God and less and less love for people. And because of that, people are going to get more and more selfish, more and more focused on themselves. Their hearts are going to become hardened. But he who endures until the end, endures in what? In love, who continues to exhibit the character of God, who is love. He who endures until the end will be saved. So I was just thinking about this this morning. If this verse refers to you and I, that we need to endure in love, what about Jesus? What about, is God giving up on Jerusalem? There he is, weeping over Jerusalem, saying, okay, that's it, you're done. Did he give up on Jerusalem? Well, he fast forward, he goes to the cross and he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And then after he's raised from the dead, he goes to heaven. The Holy Spirit is poured out on Pentecost, and thousands believe. And then you fast forward, and 5,000 believe. And then pretty soon in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, you find that the Word of God is increasing. It's going with power, and very many of the priests are believing in Jesus. Even the priests, Jesus wasn't done with. He may have wept over that city, but his love endures forever. The Bible says that again and again. His love endures forever. And love, it's not natural for us to have love that endures. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 says love is patient. Patience in and of itself is an endurance under uh, difficult and rough circumstances that are hard for us. Love is patient. Love is kind. It treats others with kindness when they're not treating us right. Love is patient. Love is kind. It do, does not brag. It is not arrogant. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice with unrighteousness. All of these things are a, an endurance in doing something for others without a focus on ourselves. And then it, it goes on to say that love doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into account wrong su- suffered. Love bears all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So we could walk out of here today saying, man, I am not a loving person, and we could focus on that, and we do need to recognize that. But how do we become loving people? It's not by trying to stir love up inside of ourselves, but it is by recognizing our need for a Savior, recognizing that we are wretched and miserable, poor and blind. And asking for the Holy Spirit to fill us with that love that endures forever. Because it's heaven born. It's not our love. It's his love. And he wants to fill us with that love. So let's keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. So my friend, he, he goes on in the conversation. And, and I'm thinking, okay, he's probably done with I mean, spending that many 
thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. I, I don't think he would go on. But he says, okay, so I'm calling you because here's the deal. I want for, for you, you have connections, I think, in like Washington, D.C. through the church. You know, you can work with the general conference and, and you can work things out where here's the plan. He said, I have this briefing prepared by my attorney, a letter. I want it to go to uh, Senate Chaplain Barry Black. And then what I want is for Senate Chaplain Barry Black to take that to Secretary of State Pompeo. And I want for, or no, no, no. First it was to Benjamin, Car- Ben Carson. I want it to get to Ben Carson. And then Ben Carson will take it to Secretary of State Pompeo. And then he'll take it to Donald Trump. And this will sit on the President of the United States table. Are you serious? Are you kidding me? This guy really wants to save his kids. And he was a foster parent. He, they weren't his natural born children. How much more? What greater lengths will the God of the universe go through in seeking to save that which is lost? I'm lost. You're lost. And in need of that saving grace in our lives. And he's willing to go whatever distance it takes in order to save you. So I texted him this morning. Uh, back in January, actually, I asked him how it was going because I don't have connections with President Trump. I'll just be honest. And it didn't work out quite like that. Um, so I said, I'm sorry, I did my best. And he kept saying, well, what about this? What about that? And so I tried a few more things. And I'm like, man, I, I'm at the, <laughs> this, is, this is what I, I'm sorry. I'll pray because I know that a God who cares. Well, in January, he told me, man, there's some amazing things. The judge had put some things on the biological dad's uh, requirements that, that he violated and taking his kids down to Mexico and they're being mistreated down there. And I think this is going to work out. I think everything is going to work out. But then I didn't hear from him for months. So I figured maybe the kids aren't here yet. So this morning I said, okay, I'm thinking about telling the story. I better text him to make sure that's okay with him. And he, he gave me permission to, to share it. And then he said, he said this um, just a few minutes ago. He said, yesterday morning, the Mexico government sent an official written notice to the United States consulate that they are ready to repatriate our two children back to the United States. Yesterday afternoon, the U.S. consulate sent a di- diplomatic cable to Washington, D.C., to have them repatriated. This will be tested as an urgent request and it should move forward very quickly. He said he expects within a week and a half to be reunited with his kids. Friends, this is an earthly, sinful dad who's exhibiting a love that endures. How much more does Jesus have that love for you? He weeps when we misrepresent him But in our backslidings, if we'll only return, he will gladly enfold us in his wings and lift us up and carry us on to heights of loving people around us for his eternal glory. So today, I just want to challenge you to challenge myself. First of all, to recognize that I'm wretched, I'm miserable, I'm poor, I'm blind. And I don't even know it. I also need to recognize that, that it's it's worse than I know. And second of all, to recognize that there's a God of love who's just waiting to encircle me in those wings. And to say today, give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. You can have all the world, just give me Jesus. And Jesus, live out your life within me. Let's pray. God, we want that to truly be the prayer of our hearts. Give us Jesus. 
Father, not some pretentious thing, not a slogan on our t-shirt, not a bumper sticker, but Jesus in our hearts that changes us to love like You love. Father, forgive me for telling people about You more than I've represented You in my actual life. Father, I don't want to be like Jerusalem that turned away from You. I want to recognize that I'm wretched, miserable, poor and blind, naked and in need of Jesus. Father, we just pray, give us Jesus. And Lord, may we not pray it right now, but may that be what wakes us up in the morning, what drives us to get up to say, give me Jesus, to open our Bibles, to search for Jesus, to long for more and more of Jesus. Lord, may that be our all-consuming passion to know Jesus and to represent Your selfless love. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.